0: Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 is where we are today. Again, we're working our way through the book of Acts as part of our working our way through the entire New Testament in five years by taking one chapter a week. One of the oddities of doing one chapter a week, uh, this week we have 15 verses, next week we have, what is it, uh, 60 verses. So... um, (laughs) But I promise that this sermon will be just as long as all of the others. I won't, I won't short you in any way. I promise to uh, kind of fulfill my duty here today. Uh, but we're watching in the book of Acts as the church is beginning to spread. The gospel is spreading out. Uh, of course, it started in the upper room. It spilled out into the city streets, into the temple. Uh, last week, we saw that some of those surrounding cities We're beginning to hear of the great things that God was doing in the church in Acts. Uh, That's going to lead to a further spread of the gospel. You're going to see the beginning today of the missionary work as you're going to have a a couple of guys begin to be raised up within the church that will eventually uh, begin a showcase chapter of their own. Uh, Stephen will get chapter 7 Philip will get chapter 8 so you'll start to see how these guys begin to go out and administer uh, really just kind of the foundation of how the gospel is going to spread uh, throughout the world Uh, when we look at the scripture we always want to ask ourselves uh, these questions what is God saying to me in his word and then what am I going to do about it and so we want to be faithful hearers of the word who don't just hear the word but we become doers of the word as well so paying attention for ourselves this isn't just a, a moment where you get to experience a sermon. Uh, it's intended to uh, give you opportunity to ask the question, God, what do you want me to gain from this passage? What can I learn uh, that can grow me in my faith or can guide me in my life? Uh, so uh, let's just set the scene here uh, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews Against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Well, a number of things that we have to remind ourselves. that this church that began as 120 people in the upper room has quickly grown by some estimates to be about 25,000 people in the city of Jerusalem it grew fast. And the structure isn't in place just yet. They're just trying to figure it all out, right? So they've got a lot of things they have to sort out. They don't have uh, the rules and all that kind of stuff that they need. They don't have the people in place. They don't have a staff. They don't have a building. You know, they don't have a church constitution. All that stuff isn't there. In the midst of that, they're suffering persecution from the outside. The religious leaders of the nation of Israel have been trying to silence them. There's been threats of violence. There's been actual violence. There's been prison time. Even of death. And so they have this outward pressure on this newly formed church. But there's also an inward pressure that exists in every church still today. And that inward pressure is amongst the people, you start to struggle because the reality is, even though we have had our sins forgiven, we still sin. <laughs> even though we have surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ, we still have moments where we surrender again to ourselves instead of to him. That's what happened in chapter 5. You remember Ananias and Sapphira had this problem, uh, this problem of pride. They were trying to get the reputation of Barnabas at a discount price. And now here in chapter 6, we're going to start to see the cultural differences of 25,000 people trying to associate with one another. You're going to start to see these two different groups that are going to struggle. Uh, I would say in a certain sense, this is an issue of prejudice that they're struggling with. The situation is you have uh, essentially, as it's being described here, uh, two different groups of Jews, two different schools of thought. One, very Jewish in nature. They brought with them their Jewish culture wherever they went and whatever they did. The other has taken on the Greek culture cultural look, appearance, activities, but maintained their Jewish beliefs, which of course now they're adding to that their faith in Jesus Christ. And so you have these two different groups. Again, uh, you might look at it in this way. You have one group that thinks you should always do the things the way we used to do them back in the day. And this other group that says, well, times change a little bit. And so maybe we change with the times without changing our doctrinal beliefs, Again, neither one of these sides has given up on Jesus Christ. That's not what's happened. But but they're just a little bit different. Uh, You could say it's the same cultural problem that we have in every church still today, right? Uh, We still have kind of this struggle within churches. Uh, I am sure that there are a number of people who walked in the room today and thought, Sean's wearing shorts again. (laughs) Does he not know we're in the house of God? Sorry. I just want you to know that there are also those when I wear pants that are like, who's Sean trying to impress? (laughs) There's just always going to be these kind of cultural differences where we sometimes will substitute outward appearance or tradition for godliness. And it comes from both sides. Both sides think they're being more godly more Christ-like. Well, in this particular case, it led to result, the cultural differences led to the result that the widows in the church were not being cared for as much if they had the Greek or Hellenistic lifestyle. If they looked more Greek, acted more Greek, that they were just kind of being overlooked. Well, this tells us something else about the early church. Immediately, the early church was involved in acts of benevolence. Uh, you can see that uh, right away, immediately, they recognized, if we're going to have all of these people, we're going to have people that are going to have needs, and we're going to have to care for those people. We're going to have to take care of those needs. Specifically in Scripture, uh, you'll recognize an emphasis on caring for widows. Uh, also, you'll see other things like orphans, but this, this concept here, this caring for widows, um, it's, it's a, a difference that we have to understand that we have this kind of great benefit, this great advantage today, uh, that those who are widows maybe have had something like life insurance to help them. Or maybe are still capable of holding a job. There, there's some provision governmentally from them, potentially. But it certainly wasn't like that at this time. They were alone and on their own. They didn't have the financial care. And so what would happen is uh, the the church did this, but the Jews did this before them, that the congregation of believers would care for those who were widows. What I also want you to recognize in this care is the daily nature of it. This wasn't a one-time gift. We'll help you out today, but then you're on your own. Now, this was a daily serving of the food. Uh, remember what had happened with this church early on in Acts chapter 2. Uh, also in Acts chapter 4, you saw just this great sharing amongst the believers. And they were taking care of everybody's needs within the church. They would sell property if that's what it took to take care of somebody else's needs. That was the kind of sharing that they had going on with the church. As the church progresses through the New Testament, you'll recognize a slight change there. You're going to start to see that they have to put some regulations on this because the church is not designed specifically or wholeheartedly to care for everybody's needs. That's not really its purpose. It's a portion of its purpose, but that can become overwhelming to a church to the point where there's more need than you can deal with. And so they've had to put some regulations. The first regulation that they're putting, though, here is that they're going to add a group of people who will be in charge of this instead of the apostles, so that the apostles could devote themselves uh, to the word in prayer. So they're going to have that will be the first answer we'll see here. But what I want you to see as you look forward through the rest of the teaching of Scripture, the apostle Paul is going to come in later and he's going to give Timothy a much longer list of rules on how to deal with caring for the widows in the church. Uh, it's not because we want to be less caring, but it's, it's because we have a tendency to be so caring that we put ourselves in a bad situation. And now we miss the opportunity not just to care for others who have needs, but to actually exist because we've given away everything that we have. So there's really this balance here. We have to somehow try to figure out how to fit within those two categories. And so you'll see, again, it starts with the amazingness, give, 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 give. And then there's the reality, oh, now we're out of money. Now we've got to like slow it down a little bit. Uh, The other thing I'd like you to recognize amongst the benevolent ministries of the early church, the primary focus was on other believers, Uh, which I think is a little bit of a change to the way we do church today. Uh, I think the primary focus of benevolent ministries in churches today is not on believers, but unbelievers. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking care of the needs of unbelievers. Uh, I just want to make sure we're clear that the intent is that the believers would take care of believers. And then I would say the overflow of that, if you have more to take care of others outside the church, that becomes a great evangelistic opportunity. But again, we can't solve everybody's financial problems. We just can't. But we could do probably better. Uh, we had to actually do this in our own church. We had to make a little bit of an adjustment. Uh, we would every year uh, put out our annual budget. And in our annual budget, we put a, a, a par, a, a set apart a specific amount of money that just goes just towards benevolence. Well, what happens when you do that and you start helping people? Word spreads pretty fast amongst those who need help. <laughs> And so we became quite popular for those who needed help. So much so that uh, there are certain hospitals in town that, if you certain hospitals, <laughs> the hospital in town <laughs> that if you can't pay their bill, they'll say call Calvary Chapel. And there's benevolent ministries beyond ours that, when they're short, they say go to Calvary Chapel. So we had to start putting some restrictions on those things. And our primary restriction was this. Yes, we have a benevolence fund, but we're setting aside a portion of our benevolence fund for people in the church. Because what would happen was we would give, I mean, usually by the first of the month, we've used all the money we've budgeted for the month on benevolence. It's just people know the first of the month. Here we come, they line up at the doors, Pastor Tom gets to deal with all of this, it's amazing that he has the, uh, the heart and the endurance to do this, it's this amazing thing, but it's immediate, and it's just, they know there's new money coming every month, and so the people line up. So what we've done is we've just established a portion of that we'll always set aside for those who are a part of our church, so that we don't find ourselves in a circumstance where we've given away all that we have, and then somebody within our ministry has a need, and we can't meet that ministry. When that's happened in the past, uh, just so you know, it's, it's not a, a huge concern because when it's happened in the past, we just make adjustments. We'll either take that money from another budgeted area. Sorry, children's ministry. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Rarely that budget area, but we'll just take the money from another budgeted area, or we just ask around the church. We've just asked around the church, and there are certain people that uh, when they know that there's a need and they hear about it, they'll give to it. So we've had that ability, it's a a wonderful thing that we're able to do, Uh, but it's a part of the early church, but again, it's not the primary focus of the church, and that's where the real struggle is going to come in. Uh, This complaint is going to be brought to the apostles, so imagine now, there are 12 apostles at that point, it sounds like a good-sized group, right? But not when you think there might be 25,000 people in the church. That is a lot to care for, a lot to organize, and so uh, they... Come up with this solution here in verse 2. It says, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, but not Pumba, Parmenas, and Nick, thanks for getting my joke, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, and these they brought before the apostles, and after laying their hands on them, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So, uh, the apostles now have to deal with this problem. They have to decide what they're supposed to do. Uh, and they basically said, look, it's, it's not really desirable that we set down our time of prayer and our time in the word in order to become servants at the tables. So what they decide to do is they're going to set up a group of what will become most commonly known as deacons. And that comes from the word there in the Greek, uh, to serve tables, table servants, diakonos, becomes our English word deacon, which will eventually become a title in Scripture. They're going to establish this ministry. and uh, The whole purpose of the ministry is to deal with tasks within the church, administrative, financial, benevolent, different types of tasks within the church, so that those who are the spiritual leaders in the church can actually do the spiritual ministry that they're called to. Again, we have to find a balance here, though. The apostles, or as you would look at a church today, the pastors and the elders, it's not that they shouldn't serve ever or do anything physical. It's just that we don't want those services that they do, the physical things that they involve themselves in, to take them away from their primary ministry, which is the ministry of the word. And so churches throughout history, whether they've called them deacons or not, or maybe it's a board of directors, or maybe you have all of these things, or maybe you just have, we used to have a ministry called Servants of Christ which translated means deacons. (laughs) And we've kind of revived that as a way to kind of bring in more people into this idea that you could be serving in the church, Uh, that there's very simple, practical ways that you can serve. But as you do that, your participation is allowing the spiritual ministry to happen. And I I can tell you that there were times uh, where in our church, it wasn't easy for me to be a pastor here. There wasn't a whole lot of time for me to do the spiritual things. It was very difficult There were times where I was the one here plowing the the parking lot at four in the morning. Just back and forth, back and forth on Sunday morning, and then get done with that, and then be ready to preach. Whether it was shoveling sidewalks or whatever it was, all of these different things. I used to be in charge of cleaning that bathroom right over there as the senior pastor. And I would tell people, Rarely on Sunday mornings, but particularly on Wednesday nights, I would tell people, could you please use that bathroom? <laughs> Sunday mornings, there's just too many people here. But on Wednesday nights, just do me a favor. That's not my bathroom to clean. Would you clean that one? Or would you use that one? You just kind of have to do those just things you have to do. And you certainly don't want to get so full of yourself that you're unwilling to do anything in physical service. But at the same time, when those things begin to take you away from the ministry of the word that you're actually called to, something has to be done. And that's what the crunch is that the disciples are feeling here. And so they're going to come up with this idea. They're going to appoint in the church uh, these men whose purpose it is uh, to serve the tables. But that's not, to me, the end of the task of a deacon. Again, I would say the deacon would be involved in any type of physical task that can relieve some of the, the pressure on the church so that the people of the church can just worship, and the leaders of the church can lead. But what I want you to notice about these people that are put in charge of this task, uh, it didn't say we need them to have shown that they worked six months in a restaurant in the past. It doesn't say they need to have a strong back. No, the, the idea was they had to have a good reputation, they had to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. This was more of a A spiritual thing. And it wasn't just that they served the tables. They were in charge of this task. So they could have appointed others to serve under them to do the actual work. But they were going to solve this riddle so that the apostles, so that the pastors or elders or however you want to look at it, so the leaders of that church in Jerusalem anyway, didn't have to think about that administrative task. It's still a ministry task. They're ministering, right, to the widows. But it's more in the physical realm. But it's not that we think our deacons or that they would say that the deacons shouldn't be spiritual men or women. They should be spiritual. And that's what we're going to see happen with this group of guys. As I said before, we're going to have this change now where the primary ministry is not going to be the 12 apostles from this point forward in the Bible. You're going to see here at the end of chapter 6, But the first guy on the list there who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Stephen, he's going to take the spotlight. Now, he was a deacon. He was in charge of making sure the tables got served. Yet, he was a spiritual man, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, who had good reputation. He's then going to begin preaching the gospel in the synagogues. Ultimately, he's going to be able to preach the gospel before uh, the, the, the council, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the nation of Israel, and then he'll become the first martyr. The second guy on the list, Philip, he then gets the spotlight in chapter 8 as he's going to begin to become a missionary of the church, going out outside of Jerusalem bringing the gospel. So you see how the, the attention is now focused from the apostles and the work is now spread out, both in type of work, but it's also that they're going to be doing the same type of work. So yes, physical servants, but also spiritual so that they can do spiritual work when necessary, when called to by God. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Again, just like the widows, you're going to see that more instructions about how this should work in the church will come throughout scripture. And so you'll start to see a very distinct pattern. Uh, The first thing in the book of Romans, Paul's going to just mention briefly But there is a female deacon by the name of Phoebe. So Romans chapter 16. This is why we have male and female deacons in our church, because we see it in Scripture. The next thing you'll recognize is there's going to be a distinction made more clearly by Paul. In Philippians chapter 1, he writes this letter to the church, and he addresses it to the elders and the deacons. So again, you're seeing a little bit of a separation of the labor there, the purposes, the intent... And then finally, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, as he first defines the qualifications of an elder, he's going to give a greater list than this list of qualifications for a deacon. And then again, in there, he has a section that he devotes specifically to females who are deacons. But this is this kind of pattern that we're seeing. Uh, Things are coming out of a practical need at the Church of Jerusalem, the first church, but it begins to get more codified throughout the scripture. With that, I would say this, that we're going to have from time to time some unique things that are going to happen in churches, and we're going to have to make decisions that aren't necessarily clearly lined out for us in scripture, and so we're going to adjust to our circumstances by allowing godly people to make God-focused, God-prayed-about, hopefully, decisions that we'll have the wisdom of God, the spirit of God to guide us in making those decisions as we kind of work our way through these things. But this group of men uh, is going to be uh, faithfully taking care of that task. They're going to be put in charge of that. Just a little bit of my uh, vision for what I hope our deacons ministry becomes more and more and more, uh, that is this. Uh, I think deacons ministry should be huge and robust. Uh, I think a big portion of the church should be serving as deacons. And I think that the deacons should begin to uh, specialize in tasks. And so you might have a group of deacons that focus in specifically on benevolence. You might have a group of deacons that focus in specifically on Sunday morning service prep. You might have a group of deacons that are the uh, the young deacons that are the moving ministry. Because we get, this is a weird thing. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, apparently it's pretty normal to just call the church when you're moving and say, hey, we're moving. What time can you be there? (laughs) And so, you know, all of us pastors have done it on a pretty regular basis and pretty much all the deacons have had an opportunity to help people move. Um, I'm just telling you that our deacons aren't always as young as you think they are. But it'd be nice just to have this group of young men. We'd have the young men in our church that would be in charge of the shoveling ministry because you got all this snow on Sunday mornings, and so you just slowly build those. We actually have a little bit of those things, but they're not necessarily qualified, what we would say qualified as deacons. We haven't given them that title, but I think that that ministry can continue to grow in that sense. It should become more specialized in specific tasks. The other thing that happens in a church that I think is also important is because these deacons are spiritually qualified... We often steal them for elders later. And so we always have this kind of depleting thing that's always going on in our deacons ministry. We bring in no more deacons, and then we're like, wow, that guy's not just deaconing, but while he's taking out the trash, I saw him praying with people. I see this guy leading Bible studies in his own home. You know, we could use another elder, and we steal a deacon. A lot of our elders used to be deacons. Not steal. We transition some of our deacons... Into elders' ministry. Some of them we've asked and they're like, no, we're good. <laughs> but that idea is there. For our church, uh, all of our board of directors are either qualified as elders or deacons. Because again, this is, yeah, it's an administrative task. But we want spiritual people on that board. We want people that are praying about these decisions. Yes, we want them to be smart. Yes, we want them to have skill sets from the real world. But we want those skill sets to be connected to a heart for God. So that's what I'm seeing there. And then the last thing I just want to say about deacons before we move on is this I think that Jesus' example at the Last Supper, where he disrobed and washed the disciples' feet and said, I've set an example for you, go and do likewise was written for all believers. And I think all believers should strive to live like deacons, even if they never have the title, to be servants at heart. And beyond that, I would say, all believers should look at the qualifications of a deacon and ask yourself this question. Are there any of those things that only deacons should be? Uh, One of our elders uh, from the past, Todd Colvin, did this, I thought, really impressive study where he looked at all the qualifications of deacons and elders. And he said, You know, all of those things in other places are required of just believers. (laughs) Those should be targets of ours, not to attain to a title, but to just do the things that Jesus asked us to do. He asked us to be servants. That's who he wants us to be. He wants us to be servants but he also wants us to be godly. And that's what a deacon is. It's a, it's a servant who is godly. So they're going to solve their problem by dealing with this uh, more specifically by appointing these, uh, in this case, gentlemen. Now, these gentlemen all have one thing in common. They all have what I would call Hellenized names. They all have Greek names. It's possible that the congregation, in order to deal with this, just said, well, if we're having problems with the the more Hebrew Jews, the ones who are more old school Jews in their lifestyle, ignoring this other group, why don't we put people in charge of it that are from the other group? So it's possible that that's maybe what's happening there uh, as you see these different names. All of those are Greek-ish names. And again, Stephen now is going to... Uh, take the attention. I do want to just point out real quick, Nicholas, he is a proselyte from Antioch. Essentially what it's saying is this guy has no Jewish background. He became a Jew. He was a proselyte. He became a Jew, but then he met Jesus Christ. And so now he's a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ. So this guy's been through the whole gamut of faith, which I think is kind of exciting to see uh, as we do this. And then at at the very end of that, uh, they laid hands on the deacons. And sent them into ministry. This is, a, this is a, an interesting but a really cool picture, particularly for those who have an understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, this idea of laying on hands is a pretty powerful one in Scripture. In fact, the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews says it's one of the elementary teachings. Like this is the stuff you learn in elementary school. The idea of laying on hands, there's this power and there's this importance to it. Uh, throughout scripture, you see it have various representations. Uh, one is the, the issue of representation. Uh, that is when you were bringing a sacrifice, you would lay hands on the animal that was to be sacrificed. Uh, you're associating with this animal saying, this animal is dying for my sins. He's dying as a representation of me, which becomes important later because Jesus died as a representation us. So this laying on of hands represents that. A laying on of hands would represent a blessing. You would see that they would call together somebody and lay hands on them in order to send God's blessing into their life. Parents would do this with their kids. Uh, one of them, which is what we're specifically seeing here, is to commission somebody into work. And so they would lay hands on the high priest, for instance. They would lay hands on on a newly appointed king. They would lay hands on them for the purpose of commissioning them to do some sort of work. And there's a nice visual there. If you want to know if the apostles agree with the idea of having these deacons, well, they all came together and laid hands on them and prayed for them. It's what we do here, right? When we bring in a new pastor, a new elder, a new deacon, when we send people out on missions work, we call them up here on the stage, we call the elders of the church together, we lay hands on them and we pray. It's this this visual way of seeing that we agree with or support what it is that they're doing in this. Uh, Then in other places, you'll see that they would lay on hands for healing or for giving of the Holy Spirit. And then there's one negative way it's used in scripture. Sometimes when they say laying on of hands, it means you're about to be arrested. That's not what this is. But I did think I wanted to spend a little time on that. Hebrews 6 says it's an elementary teaching and I think a lot of us haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about elementary school in a while. So. We got a little bit of elementary school teaching there on the idea of laying hands. So again, as I said before, though, the focus is going to move away from the apostles now to some of these deacons. They were commissioned to serve tables, but watch what some of these guys are going to do. Let's start with Stephen today in verse seven. uh, The word kept on spreading and the number of the disciples uh, continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I want to stop there for just a second. A great many of the priests were becoming obedient. Remember in chapter 5, Gamaliel said, don't mess with these guys. If it's from God, it'll succeed. If it's not from God, it won't succeed. And so they decide not to do anything about this. They're going to let it go. Understand by the end of chapter 7, they're going to go back to murdering people. And I think the reason they're going to do that is they're starting to see the religious leaders of the nation of Israel convert, convert to Christianity. Now it's getting real personal for those religious leaders. So the priests of the nation of Israel were beginning to become believers. You might not recall exactly how that works historically. Uh, In the service of the temple, God took the tribe of Levi and said, all of your sons will serve in the temple. So all the Levites served in the temple. And this is a cool image. I want you to see this here. But amongst the Levites, one family, the family of Aaron, they were called priests now look there was a division of labor there all the levites were in charge of carrying and setting up the temple taking care of the physical acts just like deacons were but this one tribe the priests they were in charge of the actual sacrifices approaching god again it's it's that division of labor it's very practical. They had a mobile temple. you got to get it from place to place. we got to put somebody in charge of that. Tribe of Levi, you're in charge of that. Okay, but we also need some people to actually do the sacrifices. Okay, from this one family within the tribe of Levi, the people of Aaron, you'll be the priests. To a certain extent, that's gone forward in the church. Uh, but I want you to see that it didn't just go forward in the idea that we're all servants It goes forward in this way. Paul says, we're all priests as well. So we all have this dual nature of physical service and spiritual service. We are the priests. We're a royal priesthood. That one's Peter. Anyway, where was I? Verse 8, and Stephen, one of those deacons, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So now, again, I've said that focus is going to shift from the apostles to just disciples within the church starting to do the ministry. In this case, first it's going to be Stephen. And his ministry, I think, is pretty impressive, pretty powerful. You'll see that Stephen, he's full of grace and power. We basically already knew that he was full of wisdom. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That was the the expectation of a deacon. It gets repeated in verse 5. He was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, here full of grace and power. Stephen does something we haven't seen before. In the book of Acts, he begins doing miraculous work. He begins with the signs and the wonders among the people. He was performing those things. This is how the gospel is going to spread, not from just the people who are the special ones, the apostles. No, the great commission was to the disciples. Disciples. It's an interesting thing, you might not recall this, but when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, it says he called the eleven. The eleven were all that was there. So you could get the mindset that it was only the eleven who were supposed to be involved in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. But it wasn't just the eleven, because what he does in that, he doesn't call them apostles there, he calls them disciples. It's just an interesting little tweak, but it's a reminder for us that the work of the Great Commission belongs not just to a special group of people, a set-aside group of people. The work of the Great Commission belongs to all of God's people, that all of us in various ways using our gifts, our talents, our time, our energy, our finances, whatever it is that we have, that all of us are somehow investing in the kingdom work of taking the gospel to the nations. Again, the priests in the seats, the pastors in the pews. All of you have this. And I think, again, all of us should be seeking to be deacons, but also all of us should be available for whatever work God has for us, that we can be doing the things that God needs. And in this moment, Stephen is performing great wonders and signs among the people. It does cause a problem, though. There's a group in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. Uh, So to keep in mind how the Jewish system worked, yes, they had a, a temple where everybody was to gather together at certain times. But in every city of a certain size, if there was enough Jews there, they would have a synagogue. And if you had a bunch of people in the city, you would have a bunch of synagogues. The estimate is there were about 430 synagogues in Jerusalem at that time a synagogue would look kind of like this. It would be be what we would call a church today. Well, this one particular synagogue was called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And so it's almost like they had even begun to to denominationalize their synagogues, where you start to, to label what type of synagogue it is. This is a fascinating one. The Synagogue of the Freedmen was likely Jews who had been Roman slaves who had been freed. Uh, One translation calls them the synagogue of the Libertines, those who had been freed from slavery. And they gather together with others just like them who have been freed from slavery for the purpose of, of, of learning about God. But they now see Stephen doing these miraculous things and all these people are getting excited about it. And so They decide that they're going to rise up and argue with Stephen. And these guys are from kind of all over the place. You got the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians. They're from North Africa. You got people from just above uh, Israel there in Cilicia. You got people from Asia, what would be maybe modern day Turkey, something like that. You kind of got these people from all over the world who've come together in Jerusalem as freedmen to worship. And they see this group that they would probably think of as a cult preaching the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And they decide, we're going to put an end to this. We're going to have an argument with them. But remember, Stephen was full of wisdom. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. Kind of hard to argue with a guy like that. And that's the problem they're going to have. They're going to argue with him, but they're just unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So here's a question for you. When you have a discussion, I'm going to call it a discussion because you guys don't argue with people, but when you have a discussion with somebody and all of their arguments are better than yours and all of their answers are clearer than yours, how do you respond to that? Hopefully you respond either by doing more research because maybe you're just not as smart as you thought you were, or... By surrendering to the truth that they've just taught you, right? That would be the way a normal person would respond or should respond. But that's not what these guys do. Look here in verse 11. Then they secretly induced men to say, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people. The elders and the scribes, they they came up to him and dragged him away, brought him before the council. They put forward false, false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I don't know what a face of an angel looks like, but. but here's the deal. Their response to losing an argument was to induce men to accuse them of blasphemy. Their response in verse 13 was to put forward false witnesses. When your argument stands on lies, if you have to break the ninth commandment to make your argument, it's probably not a very good argument. That's what these guys are doing. So yes, they're religious people. They were from a synagogue. They were trying to pursue God. God didn't give them a ton of rules, right? If you could just keep these first 10, we'd be doing pretty good. And they couldn't. In order to respond to this, they have to bear false witness. They have to lie. What's interesting about it is the witnesses that they were bringing weren't entirely inaccurate. I wouldn't say that he was speaking against Moses, and he certainly wasn't speaking against God. But to them, it would have probably sounded that way. And the same thing, they're making the same accusations here that they made about Jesus at his his trial. They're saying in verse 14 that Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs of Moses handed down to us. I think that's a misrepresentation. Jesus didn't say, I'm going to destroy this temple. He said, if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, pointing to himself. But also, he did remind the disciples that the temple that was being built in Jerusalem was temporary. It was a temporary temple. It was going to be torn down. And in fact, that is going to happen. But he wasn't saying he was going to do it. So you see how they just tweaked the argument just a little bit to make these guys look bad, to make them look blasphemous? And it's not that Jesus altered the customs of Moses. He fulfilled them. He fulfilled the customs of Moses. He fulfilled the law. He didn't change them. He perfectly represented them because we can't. But these little tweaks that they brought in there in order that they could accuse and ultimately put to death Stephen. They're going to drag this poor guy before the council, which is just where Peter and John and the 12 had been over the last couple of chapters. It's just where Jesus was a couple of months before this when he was put to death, again, in front of the highest religious leaders in the nation of Israel at that time. Before the Sanhedrin, to be put on trial Another Christian on trial. We get a look at his trial next week in chapter 7. And thankfully they broke this out because his defense is a long-winded one. uh, A pretty awesome one. It's really going to end up being this kind of great historical account of the things that God was doing in Israel. And ultimately doing through Jesus Christ. Uh, So we'll look at that uh, next week. But there is this really interesting thing at the end in verse 15. Where as he stands before the council, everybody recognizes. They all see him. And his face is like the face of an angel, and my guess is uh, that it had a glow about it. That's the way I would interpret that. That uh, the face of an angel, not like in the Old Testament where it describes angels as having four faces representing different animals. I don't think that's what he looked like in that moment. But if he did, they should have known something was up, right? Let's not mess with this guy. So if that's the case, they shouldn't have messed with him. But I think it was actually a a moment for God to help them realize that he was about to speak for God, just like Moses would go up on the mountain, he would meet with God, he would come down and deliver the word of God to the people of God, and his face would glow when he came down from meeting with God. In fact, it was so important, this idea that the face of Moses would glow, that he would cover his face so that they couldn't watch the glow go away and think to themselves, oh no, the glory of God has left. So Moses would wear a veil over his face so they couldn't see the glory of God leaving. I think a very similar thing here with Stephen. The glory of God showing through him, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, is now about to speak a defense not of himself. He's speaking a defense of the work of God and the work of Jesus Christ throughout history. That's the defense that Stephen's about to bring. Well, again, as we come to the end of any chapter, we want to ask ourselves, at the beginning, what is God saying to me and what am I going to do about it? Hopefully the Spirit began to reveal some of those things to you. But now the homework is, now have a conversation with somebody about that. Just a real simple way that we can begin to disciple ourselves, to teach ourselves to grow. Now that you guys can have this conversation with your kids, because your kids got Acts chapter 6 this morning in children's ministry. You can have that conversation with them, because you've read through it every day this week, and you heard a sermon by Pastor Sean, you're ready to go. You can have a, dis- a discipleship conversation with a friend or a coworker. So here's what I learned in Scripture today. I learned that if Jesus was the servant of all, and deacons are servants, and we're supposed to follow Jesus' example, maybe we should become more like deacons. This isn't just an appeal, by the way, to get more deacons in the church. But you can have that conversation with somebody. It's a conversation starter. It's an opportunity. And then I do want you to read chapter 7 every day next week. Ignore that slide. All the information on it is wrong. I will fix that between services. You're going to read Acts chapter 7 next week, which is a longer chapter, but if you read through it every day in the next week, God's really going to begin to till and do some work in your heart. So, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, so thankful for uh, this time in the Word. Uh, So thankful for the example of of, uh, the apostles who didn't Ignore the problems, whether it was the pridefulness of Ananias and Sapphira that they confronted, the sin that was there, or the prejudice that was happening amongst the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew, Hebrew Jews. That they didn't just leave that, that they appointed people to deal with those problems, those real sincere problems that were there. But Father, on top of that, that there was an entrusting of tasks and ministry to people within the church. There was an understanding that everybody has a role to play, an important part to play. Father, help us to see what our role is. And help us to understand that even if our role is a a simple task, or even at times we might consider it a menial task, that doesn't prevent us from being used in amazing ways by you. Father, help us to strive to be people who are full of your spirit and full of wisdom, full of grace, that we would be a people who could speak on your behalf. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.